Welcome to Season 6, Episode 8 of Digital Learning Radio. I'm Nancy Watson, and I'm here in our studio with Misty Trevino and Catherine Laster. In this season, we are focusing on caring enough to step in for equity, care enough to spend some time in self-work, care enough to get to know your students for who they are, care enough to consider that your efforts toward equity matter. Today, we are talking with Coral Zayas, a bilingual educator in Austin ISD on issues related to diverse teacher retention and career development. I met Coral at the ISTE Equity Forum event this past June, and she and I have had a few conversations since then about leadership equity and teacher retention. So I'm so happy to welcome her as a guest today. Welcome, Coral. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So Coral, can you tell us a little bit about your educational journey? Sure. Um, I grew up here in the state of Texas um, in the DFW area. My family's originally from Puerto Rico, but we moved here when I was just a baby. So um, our family has always really valued education. It's the reason that they came to Texas in the first place. Um, So I was here until I graduated high school. And then I went to college in North Carolina at Elon University. I studied international studies and did my research in international education and kind of focused on Latin America. But um, my college didn't actually have a bilingual education program, so I kind of knew that in the end, when I came back to Texas, I would add my teacher certification in bilingual education. So that's what I ended up doing after working in Arizona for two years as a high school ESL teacher. I helped start a education nonprofit called the Northern Arizona College Resource Center. It was a joint project with Northern Arizona University and the Flagstaff YMCA. So I did that for a few years before I came back to Texas. And then since 2013, I've been a bilingual teacher in the state of Texas. I've also worked kind of off and on during that time with Tarrant County College. So I got to teach some university level courses and um, have worked on the college access issues kind of within education. And then right now I'm finishing my master's in learning design and technology through Purdue University. So fingers crossed, I graduate in May. And then I'm kind of hoping to take a year off and start a doctorate very soon after that. Wow, you have quite a a vitae there. (laughs) That's very impressive. So Coral, you, it sounds like you've been many places and you've had lots of different experiences. Is there a particular place or experience where you felt especially included or welcomed as a Hispanic woman? And maybe is there somewhere where you might've felt a little excluded? Yes, um, definitely. I think that included, I felt a lot more included, you know, as a Latina educator, really when I was in higher education, when I switched to K-12, that's really when I started really kind of noticing those differences, especially as a bilingual educator. And I don't think it was so much as like feeling excluded. It was more in terms of it felt like the schools that I would work for didn't really understand the bilingual programming, even though they were on their campuses. So it kind of just felt like you were constantly in advocating mode for your students and for yourself and for the programs. So I, I think that really, I wouldn't say that they've been like negative experiences. It's just been like you're, you're constantly having to advocate for yourself and for your students to really make sure that, you know, what you get to do every day is, you know, being considered as of high value. And some, sometimes that's the part that I've kind of noticed is a little different. And it really has depended on 
school districts and schools and it, whether or not administrators really understood the programs they had at their own campus. So those are some of the experiences I've had with that in the past. That's really interesting to me because I was a former librarian and I know a lot of librarians feel that same way and probably like any like specialized role on a campus. I, I feel like people are always thinking that, okay, I've got to, you know, do my bit to make sure that my kids are represented here or that my program is represented and I, you know, it just seems odd in some ways that we would have to work so hard to do what is the right thing for children. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and that, it, I, I really, I relate to that, especially with the library piece, because, like, for example, last year at my last school, we we wrote a grant to get Spanish books. We were a, bil- a bilingual school. We had a bilingual program. We were the first in the district to like make it to the intermediate level of this bilingual program. And we had no Spanish books except for the language arts bilingual teacher who had his own incredible library he had spent at least three grand on so that mm-hmm. kids would have books in Spanish. Yet we're teaching them to read in Spanish. So um, I find those things very basic and really kind of shocking that they're overlooked. Um but yes, I, I mean, I've, I've definitely seen that. And I, um, I'm, I'm glad to know that, you know, that people in other roles on campus are, are recognizing that there's also a need that's not being met and that we are having to kind of like speak up about it because it's not being looked at. Yeah. And we talked in another episode about how much work it takes to speak up and advocate. Um, but we are thankful for teachers like you who are who are putting in the work. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think that, and last year, you know, I finished two policy fellowships, one with Teach Plus and one with um, Leadership ISD, the Tarrant County um, chapter, which is on the Fort Worth side of DFW. And that was really like our focus all year was like learning how to like be strong teacher advocates and how do we do this in a way that um, like our responses are respected and we're not seen as, you know, being pushy or being mean or, you know, things that people sometimes say to us, like, hold on a minute, take a step back. But here we are just trying to advocate for our students, you know, so I definitely think that that balance is really hard to find, especially because they don't teach you that they don't teach you how to advocate for your students in in that way. So it was really, for me, very beneficial to actually be part of programs that that was their focus was to teach us like how to advocate within our campuses, within our districts, within the state. So, but I don't think a lot of teachers get that opportunity or even realize that programs like that exist to give them those opportunities. I think that's why equity is so important because it's, you know, when you're advocating, you're not saying that my students deserve more than the rest of the students. You're saying my students deserve just as much as everybody else. And sometimes that's taken, um, that's taken the wrong way. Yeah, absolutely. And having that level playing field, I I feel like a lot of people who, you know, look into the equity have seen that image of the the family that's standing behind the fence at the baseball field. And then you put a box on each of them. So they're a little step closer. And then you see the next one where, you know, they're they're level so that everyone can actually see at the same page. And, And then you see the final image that's they take the fence away so that everyone like there's no fence, there's nothing blocking them. So I think you really have to like that visual always sticks in my head when I think of equity. And, and uh, we've talked several times, too, about the intentionality that is required of educators to think about it, because in certain circumstances, it really 
you know, could go unnoticed or unaddressed, at least, that some kids are not having the same opportunities as other kids. So it really takes paying attention and being intentional about the decisions that you make on your campus. Yeah, and I definitely think that paying attention piece and just being, I, I think it's not even just like between teachers and administrators or district personnel. I think it's even like teacher to teacher, like when new programs are introduced like this, you know, I feel like a lot of times other, um, your colleagues don't, don't realize what you do on a daily basis. And so I think sometimes even, even that, like just having conversations about the differences between, you know, your programs at your campus and the needs and um, being willing to listen is a huge piece of the puzzle. You know, are you, do you say that you're wanting teacher voice or are you actually listening to what the teachers are saying? You know, I think that that's, that's important between colleagues and between administrators and district personnel. Well, I really like what you said about understanding other programs, and I have a heart for ESL students. I taught uh, sheltered ESL math classes, and now I'm volunteering with um, ESL adults, teaching them English classes. And as a white woman, I feel like now I am trying to be an advocate for the ESL or bilingual programs, but that was something that was not even on my radar 15 years ago. So I've got to learn about others and programs. Yeah, I think that's really important. And even like, I've been in a lot of districts that will, will require their teachers to also have an ESL certification, but just because they have it doesn't, if, if they don't realize the connection between that theory and the practice, um, doesn't mean that they're actually translating that into the classroom because a lot of times like things that are for bilingual ESL programs, they're best practices for all right. students, regardless if they're in a monolingual program, they're in a SPED classroom, they're in a co-teach classroom, like they are best practices for students to learn and retain and, you know, get to a higher order thinking skills. So I think that those conversations between um, colleagues and different programs, like those are critical conversations that need to happen. We're all nodding our heads with you. I'm sure yes. you can. I'm sure you hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, Coral, we're thinking about our room right now with white women, but we know that the education or the educator population needs to be more diverse. So, do you know any statistics about the diversity in educator populations? I do. And I did some research to just kind of make sure I got some of the most recent numbers published. So um, some of the big studies, the most recent data comes from, it's kind of joint between the Department of Education, the Consortium for Policy Research and Education, which is out of the University of Pennsylvania, and then the National Center for Education Statistics. They kind of all crossed and used the same data so the latest numbers are showing that about 80% of the nationwide, this is nationwide data, 80% um, of the teacher population is, is white Caucasian. Then we're talking about 7% African-American. And out of that 7%, only 2% of that are African-American males. Mm -hmm. Then they're currently saying that there's about a 9% Hispanic Latinx teacher population um, 2% Asian, and then all other minority groups combined are at standing at less than 1%. That's the current kind of statistics out of the 2016 study um, from the Department of Education and some minor updates 
um, with the University of Pennsylvania study. But they're still they're still sitting at about the same rates that they were two years ago, three Which years ago. Which does not match our student population at all. No, not at all. Because our student population is at more than 50% minority nationwide. And then, of course, depending on where you are in the nation and depending on what district you are in every state in the nation, those numbers are radically different. Like my current campus, for example, is at 97% Hispanic. Um, you know, my last campus was at 75% African-American, like 20, 15, 20% Hispanic. And those were in the specialty programs and then everyone else Caucasian white. So that, that, those numbers vastly are different depending on campus to campus. You know, I, especially now I'm in a huge urban district with more than 120 schools, you know, the population is dramatically different from campus to campus. And that, that also means you've got major equity concerns across campus to campus. Yeah. And my sister-in-law, she works at a school where she is, um, it's mainly Hispanic population and she's the only Hispanic teacher there. Um, but she says that she'll have teachers send kids to her classroom and say, Hey, can you please talk to so-and-so you relate to them more or, you know, and she's like, well, you know, of course I can, but you also need to learn how to relate to them. They're in your classroom you know? And so, right. Yeah, absolutely. And like last year, I can attest to that, you know, like being on the opposite. So I've I've been a bilingual teacher, right? So normally, and depending on which bilingual program I've taught in, because I've taught in all of them, it will change. If it's a dual language, you know, two-way model, then the idea, the idea is that 50% of them are learning Spanish and 50% of them are learning English. So it should be half and half, right? demographically between various minority groups, um, American, you know, white Caucasian students, and then the Hispanic students versus the other bilingual model. They're all like Hispanic students because their first language is supposed to be Spanish to be in that program. But last year at my last campus, because of like numbers of students, number of teachers, I had three different programs in a day. I taught the Magnet Dual Language Academy. I taught the regular bilingual program and I taught a gen ed ESL mix. So I had all kinds of students in that class. We we like to joke. We, we love that because it came from everywhere. Right. We called them the United Nations group because we had kids from everywhere in that class. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's if you're going to be in America's classrooms today, you can't just say that you're going to identify with someone who looks like you or grew up like you. Like your job is to identify with all of your students. Um, and I think that teachers really like need to take that to heart. Like it's not a I'm going to push this off to someone else because they have a better relationship with them. No, like b- building those relationships is what. Or even just assuming that they would have a better relationship just because of their race. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've had, I had really good teacher friends at that last school who grew up in that district and they left that district because they couldn't connect with the kids. And like, it didn't, like, they looked just like the kids grew up in the same schools as these kids. And like, there was no connection, you know? So I think that it, I don't think, it, it should not matter, like, how you yourself identify. You need to find ways to connect with your students. whether And, you, you, like, that's that's priority one. You know, like, I've seen a lot of the 
Maslow um, before Bloom's. And and that is so true. Like if you're not relationship building in your classroom, you're not going to get them to a high academic level because they don't trust you. Like you have to build that trust in your classroom. We've, we've talked on several episodes about the importance of kids um, being able to see themselves in the adults in their building, whether that is someone of the same race or maybe a gay or lesbian teacher. And I just want to circle back around that this is not just something that the bilingual teachers should be caring about. So can you t- tell us your thoughts about why all of us should care about the retention of a diverse teacher workforce? Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, I mean, and that like, even if you want to point back to some, some people like to know their research, right? I mean, you can go back to the research, you know, John Hopkins had come up with a study that was about the having one male teacher um, that looked like them in the classroom, like how much difference that meant for these kids in terms of trajectory of staying in school, like applying to college, things like that. It like, yes, exactly what you're talking about. We, we need to be kids, need to be able to see themselves in various roles. And like, I don't think it's so much of my, I became a teacher because for that reason, I didn't have a single Latina teacher ever until I took high school Spanish. So we're talking 10th grade. Um, But it's not just seeing them as their teacher, like those teachers also need to be talking to them about all of the different career opportunities that they have so that they can see themselves in a huge variety of careers. You know, so I think that, um, all teachers need to recognize that, yes, it's important for them to be able to see themselves. So we want to think about keeping teachers of all minority groups in the field and and um, in a wide variety of positions within education, but not just having them there, but like listening to their voices so, they, so that um, they feel valued and want to continue in this field. I think that the, that's just... Um, the same thing that they would want for themselves. You know, they want to feel valued at their work. They want to feel like their voice is being heard. And, you know, they, I think it's important that they realize every teacher, regardless of race or, you know, LGBTQ identity, like needs to feel that way, needs to feel valued on their campus and that um, they, they want to come back and they want to continue doing this. They, it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be just thinking about their kids every day. Like they also want to feel like professionally they're at a place where they feel welcomed and belong there. So how can white educators step in for their colleagues of color to help address equity issues and leadership at educational institutions, especially if they themselves might want an available promotion? Well, I think that the big one is, um, listen that i mean that's number one be willing to openly listen um be willing to develop pathways to leadership for talking to teachers who are actually interested in different kinds of things and that they're they actually have access to those opportunities and supporting them in that um you know there's different districts are trying different initiatives um whether it's you know different pay initiatives or looking at loan forgiveness or things like that um, to kind of help them and moving forward that I think that that's a really complicated question. And there's a lot of different ideas that I would say that I have for that. But I think that it goes, it boils down to being willing to have these one-on-one conversations, listening to their ideas, because sometimes what, like, for example, even if, if they do want to move up, not everybody is interested in moving up to like a principal track. Like there are other positions within a district that people, that teachers are interested in. And 
like connecting with mentors. I mean, I've been in six districts, seven districts, and I had mentors at the very beginning. And then I like attached myself to other people to find them because the, those connections don't exist. Like I think between the listening piece, setting up opportunities for having mentorship so that people can actually find out what other roles are like, what kind of skills do they need, if something like that interests them and, and have pathways to be able to move up into other positions that interest them. I think that's so interesting about listening too. And it reminded me of, um, in a former position that I had, one of my colleagues was not white. And when this person would say something in a meeting, the person would be completely ignored. So we took to the person texting me to say the ideas that this person had in a meeting. And all of a sudden they were brilliant ideas, but they were not my ideas. And I felt like, you know, I wanted to support my colleague and also how horrifying it was that we had to play the game that way. Yeah. Well, and I think that on to add to that and not just with the listening, but like you're saying, like, even if it's a conversation after the meeting occurred and say like, these were actually someone else's ideas. They tried, they tried to like say this, but they were not being hurt. Like you really need to listen to these ideas because they, they are bringing value to this conversation. And even if it's a private conversation, not at the beginning, you know, like not in the middle of the meeting, like you can still advocate for them in that way, you know? Um, I, I did that a lot last year um, and the year before that, like I could tell that other educators were trying to like say things and they weren't listening to them, but maybe they would listen to something I had to say, or maybe they would listen to something like my team lead had to say. So I would bring it up and say like, this is a great suggestion that such and such, you know, a colleague of mine has, like, I think it should be considered. I think even, even being willing to do that, that's a step in the right direction. So Coral, you talked about um, some mentors and the um, importance of finding mentors that you relate to, but what about the leadership idea? Why is having diversity in leadership important? For I think for this, the, the same reason of keeping the teachers in the door, right? Um, I think that um, having a diverse leadership allows, for, for example, so this is the first school that I have ever taught at seven now that um, actually has individuals that are my administrators who have been bilingual teachers. And this is a bilingual school, but this is the first time ever that that has been the case. I've only had one administrator at another school that even spoke Spanish and, but I'm being evaluated for my teaching and they don't understand what I'm teaching half of my day. You know, so having that diversity in leadership positions, not just at the campus level, at the district level, in the curriculum department that, that can actually understand what you're saying when you say you need something for resources in curriculum um, is, is critical. And that's not just for a bilingual program. You know, I need, I need someone who actually speaks Spanish in the science curriculum department because I teach it in Spanish. It, I think it's beyond that. Um, I think that we, I think I can't, you know, I cannot speak for the whole group and for every minority, but I think that it's just nice to see people who look like us who have made it and who have been successful and that we have someone to look up to and be able to like seek them as a mentor or just like 
know how to, how do we move forward? So if the, if they're not in those positions, we we have no one to to look at like as our pathway to and yes, we can create our own pathways. I'm not saying that we can't, but it's always nice to know that there is someone there um, that you can ask for support when you're curious about different things. And, you know, that it's just nice to have those systems in place. And if they're not in leadership positions, you, you don't know who to ask. Um, So I think it's important that they're there and that they're visible on all different levels. I think that's so interesting because it kind of um, goes back to what you said a little bit earlier about students having someone to look up to and how important that would be for a student to be able to see themselves in a teacher. And it sounds like it's equally important for teachers to have leaders to look up to so that they too can can kind of move forward and see themselves in other kinds of roles. So we talked about a little bit about um, that the leadership um, piece which goes to teacher retention because you're not going to be a leader as a first or second year teacher, at least not have a significant uh, leadership role that has a title. So we got to retain them, but in order to retain them, we first need to attract them to the profession. So do you have any thoughts on how we can begin to attract a more diverse population to the field of education? Yes. And I think that, and I haven't mentioned yet to this point, but I want to make sure that I mention it, um, that one of the organizations that I completed my fellowship with last year is called Teach Plus. So I was with their Texas chapter, but they have like, they're across the country. So they just published a work with the education trust that was all on um, retention of teachers of color. And if that's not a resource that you've looked into, it is phenomenal. They have like, very specific data on the focus groups that they did, clear recommendations for districts and campus levels to to look at that retention issue. So that's one thing. I know we're talking about attracting them in, but I think that that's, that's critical too. But having incentives to get them to walk in the door to your district and to those, you know, um, positions. And I mentioned a few of them before, and some of these are also highlighted in, kind of in that study. Um, but having incentives for them to come to your campus. So I I think a lot about, because I've worked in both higher ed and K-12, I really think that those partnerships really need to be maximized because I think that working with the the districts, working with the universities while students are like starting their educational journey is a way to already start connecting them to districts and to potentially be hired by those districts when they finish. But I also think that building from within is really important because there's tons and tons of TA teacher assistant positions. And some of those assistants would make phenomenal teachers, but they might not have the resources to go and finish their degree. Or maybe their degree is finished, but they don't have a teaching credential. Well, how can we support those who are wanting to walk into our profession to connect to programs to get those certifications and then help them with those tests? Because especially for minorities, like those things add up, like every single exam in the state of Texas is $150. To be a bilingual teacher example, you have to take four of those. So, and that's if you pass the first time, which a lot of people are not passing the first time. So incentives like that, like being willing to, you know, 
help pay for the exam fee or help connect them to the certification program, whether it's a district one, one that's connected with the region servant center, whether it's a university partnership, I think that we, we need to do a lot better at leveraging our partnerships. And a lot of those partnerships exist. I just think that there are other ways to go about kind of adding to those partnerships so that we can be building from within, building from our partnerships and getting them in the door and then working on keeping them when they're there. I, I, those are just some of the ideas that I, I have. And I think that also just the, the respect, like right now it's a, you know, we're seeing it across the country, you know, we're seeing different opinions on teachers and supporting them. And I think that's critical. Like if you want to draw people into a profession, then people want to know that they're going to be respected when they're in that profession. So I think that that's an important piece too, not just the initiatives and getting them in, but to, to be treating us like we are professionals that we are who have college degrees and have certifications and, um, those are just some of the ideas that I have. Coral, you've shared some great ideas today. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I think that, um, that is a lot of kind of my thoughts on it. I, I have some others, you know, once t- teachers are in kind of the districts and hear listening to their voices when they're there and just, um, like curriculum needs and things like that. And we've kind of touched on all of them, but I think really focus on that, this quote, trend that is moving and the culturally relevance. I don't think it's a trend. I think it's a, like, we need to be doing this from the ground up everywhere because that's not just creating a culturally relevant experience from our students, but that's also bringing in teacher voice. And I think that that dramatically helps with teacher retention. So I think that that's also something to kind of ponder and think about when we're looking at the issues of attracting and then retaining teachers of color. Yes. Thank you for sharing. Great. You're welcome. So this season, we're inspired by one of Maya Angelou's quotes, do the best you can until you know better than when you know better, you do better. So thank you, Coral, for helping us know better and motivating us to do better. If others want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to find you? I love Twitter and I love connecting professionally on Twitter. So that is a quick way to be able to find me. I'm at MSZ. B-I-L-E-D, Miss Z Bilingual Ed is um, kind of the sign for me on Twitter. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. You'll just find me under Coral Zayas, and I would love to chat and keep the conversation going. Awesome. So thank you again, Coral, for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. We hope you will continue these conversations with a colleague, share this episode with a friend, and reflect on your own beliefs. Continue to diversify your feed, explore the work shared, and check out the show notes for additional resources we referred to today. If you want to continue the conversations, or if you have additional questions or feedback, find us on Twitter at DigLearnRadio. Thanks, Coral. Bye. Thanks, Coral. Bye. Thank you so much.